Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm so glad to welcome Luke Butler as my guest. Luke is one of the pillars of open source hydraulic modeling and the director of innovation at Catium, an open and collaborative water management platform. To give you a magnitude of what we're talking about, Catium had gathered 150 utilities on its platform before even launching. They also feature an impressive who's who of the water industry on their experts and advisory board, from Will Sarney to Dragon Savage through Tom Freiberg and Nusha Ajami. But if you've ever touched on hydraulic modeling, there's more than the shiny object in Catium. There's the prospect of disrupting what's often a love-hate relationship for hydraulic engineers like me, and to do it for free. Crazy, right? But don't worry, you don't need to know anything about modeling to dive in this week's conversation. So let me close this introduction by reminding you that if you like what you hear, there's actually a simple yet powerful way to help me spread the word. Take that episode and share it with two of your friends. Grab their phone, subscribe them to the podcast and tell them about what you liked. Please do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Luke. Welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. Nice to be here. I have to say it's quite a rare setup on that podcast because most of the time I've never met physically the people which uh, come on that microphone. So you're an exception. I've seen you physically last week at Aquatech, actually. Yeah. But it sounds like you're back on the other side of the Atlantic. So let's start with uh, our good old traditions. So with the postcard. So what can you tell me about Toronto, where you're at right now, that I would ignore by now? Oof, that's a tough opening question. What would you ignore? Well, or the favorite place you, somewhere you would recommend me about Toronto. Keep in mind, I was never in Toronto. So it's, it's going to be an easy one, honestly. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the obvious choice for everybody who comes to Toronto is Niagara Falls. And I always make the trek out when everyone comes. I tell people to avoid the town of Niagara Falls because it is a, a little rough around the edges, but it is a, a beautiful location to visit. You know, if you want the four-dimensional experience on Niagara Falls, then it's, it's, it's an interesting place. But the, the beauty is breathtaking and you must go. But there are like provincial parks and some more natural beauty, a little as you go further north, the cottage country, if you come at the right time of year. I don't know the exact amount of stats. It's something crazy like 40% of the world's fresh water and there's lakes everywhere. So, you know, if you hang around Toronto, it can seem a little like a little USA. But if you go north, it's where the real natural beauty is and you'll see some like beautiful cottage country and an endless amount of lakes that they can't even name because there's so many. So that's a start very related to water, which of course is going to be at the heart of what we discussed today. But actually, you know, let me start with a non-conventional part of that, um, of that discussion, which is I'm going to talk a bit about me, you know. I'm a water engineer. I'm a hydraulic engineer, even if I take it to the root. So I had some course 10 years ago or something about hydraulic modeling. And if there's one thing which I was sure when I took that course is that I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not for me. 
And it sounds to me like you're the exact opposite to that. Like uh, you've discovered that and you said, hey, that's my thing. So is that a, a right understanding? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I purposely chose that to be a hydraulic engineer. I don't think I even purposely chose to be, you know, a water engineer to start with. You know, you're, you're what, you're 16, 17, you have to choose what you want to do for the rest of your life. My dad was a software programmer, which is where I get a lot of my coding skills from. And I ended up, you know, I was doing all math, all science in high school. I'm like, oh, do engineering. That's that's what you do if you do those things. And turns out half my family was engineers, so it was maybe a wise choice. And, you know, ended up in a study, study group and there was one engineer who worked at a water utility and it sounded really interesting. So then I started doing those electives. And it wasn't really until I got into the water utility that I really knew about water modeling, at least the, the water distribution modeling. I had done some light stuff, but the stuff in uni really, really doesn't count. And my role was hydraulic modeling. I didn't really love it when I was first in Australia. Like it was sort of a means end. It was doing some things. We, we did some cool bits and pieces. And it wasn't until I left Australia and that I went to specifically the UK that I found out that there was a whole other world of hydraulic modeling that was much more advanced. And it seemed like everything we were doing was almost a sort of baby little tiny work. And it once my eyes opened up to this whole more complex world, it seemed much more interesting. And that's where I guess my, my love for hydraulic modeling sort of blossomed from that point. So that was when you were in, in the UK and then you continued that tour of the Commonwealth, uh, which led you now to Canada. Yes. And um, what I've noticed also, because, you know, I discussed with some of my colleagues and I said, hey, I'm going to talk with Luke Butler. And they said, the Luke Butler, really <laughs> that one? I said, yeah, that one. And the first thing they, they told me is that that guy is doing awesome things with open source. So it sounds like it's like your, your, your second family name, open source. How did that start? And, and what do you believe around that? I mean, what's the philosophy behind hydraulic modeling, open source? What do you try to achieve there? Yeah, maybe this is just, just the way that I operate. Like, I enjoy doing things openly, discussing it. I think that the industry is at its best when everyone is sharing what they do. And I think that really shows in the software development industry, there's a whole you know, ecosystem that just built around open openness and open source software and big enterprise solutions run off open source and even some commercial applications. Well, they thrive off a core of, of open source, but you really don't see that very much in the water industry. Maybe you get together once or twice a year to do a conference. And even some of those presentations are a little bit secret if you don't know all the difference. And my preference is always like, let's just tell people about it. It doesn't have to be, you know, once or twice a year and only give away a little bit. Like I always wanted to tell everyone the truth, what's and all, okay, this is how it, it's done. And open source was just one of those ways that I did it. You know, anything that I built or developed, I would share openly with others, maybe just as a creative way. And then also the results and the findings of it, I would openly discuss, okay, I tried these things, that these work. And I felt it was just a change that we needed in the industry to you know, do things a little bit differently. And, and honestly, it really resonated. If you've seen my LinkedIn profile, I get hundreds of likes on, you know, I only had a few thousand followers, but people in the industry really seem to enjoy this different approach where you were openly sharing what you did, which maybe I was in a fortunate position because I was working for myself. I could do that. Maybe a lot of engineers don't have that opportunity. And maybe that was just a breath of fresh air that everybody was looking for in the industry, just doing things a little bit differently. Well, actually, about that element of doing things differently, you know, we will be talking of Ketchum in just a second. And uh, I can list a lot of things which Ketchum is doing differently 
and we'll come back to that. I think there's the business model element, there's the way you launch, the way you, you, you present yourself, but I'll keep that for the second part of our deep dive. Because right before, I have the feeling that I've jumped a bit the two feet forward into this hydraulic modeling, as if everyone would know exactly what it is. But I think we have to take just a step back and to say, okay, what is hydraulic modeling and what is it used for? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, engineering is such a large space, the water utility, and then you, you work your way down to the specializations, engineering, hydraulic modeling. It's a really, I guess, a small area of expertise that um, most utilities will use. So hydraulic modeling is the uh, simulation of water networks. It could be clean water, which is the pressurized systems or the wastewater systems, the drainage. It's running uh, computer simulations of your network. And primarily they're used to be able to ask what if questions. So, you know, this is the way my, my network is running. I'm trying to replicate how it is on a computer simulation so that then you can, you know, extend or do things to the network to understand how it reacts extra capacity that changes like that. Um, yeah, so it's all about simulations that, you know, there's a nice screen with like a map. You could almost think it looks like Google Maps, but with the water layout. Uh, and behind the scenes, there's these large matrix calculations that are being crunched in the background to figure out, okay, you know, what is the pressure in your network? What are the, the flows through the pipes? At least last you give that little insight. Like, I think it surprised a lot of people with, you know, water utilities. You know, you have hundreds of kilometers, maybe thousands of kilometers of water mains. But a lot of it, we have no idea what's actually happening there. You know, we've got a few sensors of some locations, you know, some flow meters, maybe some pressure sensors, but it's really only this tiny view into the network. And hydraulic model lets you bridge that gap to simulate and understand, okay, you know, beyond what we can see in SCADA, what is actually happening in the network? Is it the right way to say that somehow you're building a digital twin of the network? Yeah, that is the buzzword at the moment is digital twin. You know, I was going to say buzzword, yeah. Yeah, plus, um, I cringed a little bit when I use it. I, I understand that's what the industry wants, so I use it a little bit more now. But yeah, it is true. You're trying to create a replica of the physical world with a digital representation of it. So you have a digital twin so that you can, anything you can do in the physical world, you could replicate first in uh, a digital space. You mentioned that most of the time you have limited information on the network, like a few sensors and not always an accurate, even GIS data about your network. And we've been discussing on that microphone with uh, Olivier Narbe how sometimes you have pipes on the map which don't exist and the other way around, pipes that don't exist on the map but which are in the network in the real life. So how can you ensure that your modeling is right if you have so few data about your network yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is, I guess, where the UK really leads the charge, but other utilities do as well, is the, the whole idea of calibration. I think a lot of the time, the initial parts of building a model are, are, are just data cleansing. It's okay, there's gaps. You know, sometimes they don't even know the diameter of the pipes. They don't know where all the connections are. The GIS isn't a true representation. Sometimes things overshoot or miss. So you spend a, a lot, maybe the first month, just cleaning up bits of data, making assumptions where they are. The next step is to actually do the validation. So you'll do field tests. So you'll put out sensors and loggers to um, understand what's happening. So you, you know, instead of having these small insights, you'll you'll give yourself a little bit more of visibility into the network. In the UK, they'll typically deploy pressure loggers. In North America, they'll actually 
do flow tests because they have a different way that they design the networks in the US compared to Europe. So they'll introduce higher flow rates and you'll, they'll test the model. So it's sort of the way that things are working as you look. And, and then it ends up being like this giant puzzle because you know things will be different. You have to figure out, okay, what's the reason that's different? Is it because the diameters are wrong? Is there a connection somewhere else? Has someone you know shut a valve in the middle of the network and then forgot to open it? Or you know, has a, the pipe condition reduced much faster than you expected and so you have to do those tests so after a while it almost becomes second nature like oh i've seen this like small deviation in, in a graphing like oh i can change these values which might seem magic to a graduate when you say oh yeah and then everything just fits like it's just enough experience and these things come together but there's always sometimes the nightmare scenarios where you just don't know like i remember there was a big pipe corridor for four pipes going down to multiple tanks. And you talk to the water utilities operators, like we have no idea what's going on. Water comes down there, there's connections all over the place. And so we just try our best. But yeah, sometimes it's still even a mystery with the models themselves. You said that the UK is leading the charge. And if I get you right, it's not the only place in the world where there's modeling at work. How widespread is it today? Is it like every single utility has a model of its network or still it's an exception? No, I would say that the majority, at least in the, the developing world, I would say every utility has a hydraulic model. If they either built it themselves or use it, it is another question. The utilities will have some type of hydraulic modeling. I don't have a ton of experience in, in the developing world, but from what I understand, it's still common in those locations. The alternative is to design your networks blindly <laughs> or use the old paper methods, which probably uh, which have not been a long time. But From my understanding, every utility that I've ever met has some type of hydraulic model. The question is more is how they're using it day to day. Do they use it every day? Is it core of their operation? Or something they pull out every five years to ask you know, a couple of questions, then put it on the shelf? I guess that's the, that's the important part. It's uh, what do you use it for? You mentioned the what if. I guess you don't have what if every day, or maybe you have a lot every day. So it really depends on the way a city grows or shrinks or how much non-revenue water you have. What is the primary use of that model you would envision? Yeah, that's probably an easy one to answer. The primary reason is for network growth, future planning, those type of scenarios. It's, you know, the utilities got, okay, what am I going to do over the next 25, 30 years? I've got X amount of customers that they're growing in these areas, so either infill or you've got green, new green developments. And so they have to figure out, okay, are the pipes that I've got on the ground going to be suitable in the next 30 years? Or am I going to have to start planning out, okay, how am I going to replace them? You know, what do we have to do? And, you know, they'll develop their capital works plan. They'll, sometimes it can be you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars worth of plans over, you know, 30 years. And they'll use the hydraulic model to prioritize when those will come through. It's also the most boring of hydraulic modeling work and something that I, I do have no joy in, but I know it, it what needs to be done. And so... Definitely in the US, that's the primary reason. The same with the UK. But yeah, that's the real the real reason and probably the biggest money saver or the reason why that people would use uh, hydraulic modeling. So that's the stage of school. That's uh, how hydraulic modeling was done so far, which you expect, I guess, to change a bit with KTM. But right before discussing KTM, what is the problem you want to solve with KTM? What was still not resolved and that you, I mean, this itch that you were scratching and which led you to creating KTM. Yeah, I, I, I see hydraulic models having so much more potential than just being something that's 
you know, pulled out every five years to write up a big plan, you know, on where you want to build your infrastructure. They can be used now to understand what's happening in network, you know, either incidents or if you want to change the way your operations of your network is running. And this is where I sort of touched on the UK that they're using the hydraulics models much more in their day-to-day operations and understanding of how their network's running. You know, in the UK and, and much through Europe, They've got DMAs, so district metered areas, and they'll, they'll constantly change and tweak them. You know, they'll change their, their hydraulic boundaries depending on what's happening in the network. Or if there's, you know, tank shutdowns, the first thing they'll do is, oh, let's run the hydraulic model and, and ask the question. So there are, you know, you can get a little bit more of appreciation instead of just maybe running through and changing the network and assuming it's right. It gives you that bit of insight. But the problem I saw was that they were still, while it's really good in the UK, it still really requires a very specific set of people to run these hydraulic models. You need to be trained in hydraulics, hydraulics, understand how it works to start using the software. And it's not even just the hydraulics of it. You know, operators are are very knowledgeable people. They understand hydraulics, maybe even in some ways better than the engineers themselves. But if you've ever seen corporate software, uh, it can be very intimidating when you you open up um, a hydraulic modeling platform for the first time and you've got literally 100 buttons in front of you different menus, and then all of it will come back as a big red screen if something goes wrong, some cryptic message. It's, it is not a user-friendly uh, approach. So I felt, me personally, even before I joined Cadian, that there was much more opportunity to, to make hydraulic models accessible to other people, just to be able to, you know, even that little sphere around the hydraulic models, maybe, you know, maybe they could use it, or even maybe just making the hydraulic model's life just that easier, right? There's it's just so much complexity that maybe, you know, it, things have grown a little bit too large. Maybe we need to look back and ask the question of why is the software like it is right now? You're the director of innovation of Catchem, right? So if you had to make a one-sentence pitch of Catchem, is it uh, hydraulic modeling for the layman or what would it be? Um, I, I would say well, that's that's a good one. It would be you know, hydraulic models accessible for all, really. It's not, layman is probably too mean of a a sentence. Like I said, operate, the people that we want to give these to accessible to are very knowledgeable people, but it's really the software that lets them down that the user interfaces. So it's really making it, and it shouldn't be just the people. It's also the size of the utilities as well. So I I think on one of my slides at Aquatech, I I led with big or small uh, digital twins accessible for all. I didn't mean to make it rhyme, but it, it did happen. And so that's probably the, the big pitch that we're trying to go with. You're saying that they're all knowledgeable, but uh, let me come back to my opening example, which is myself. And then I can very, very happily say that that wasn't really for me. And I remember we had some some work with modeling and my model was running very smoothly and was very happy. And uh, I got a, a two on 20, something like that, just because, you know, the model was very happy, but I forgot that on one side, there wasn't a wall, so water should have flown in that direction and it didn't. So just to say that sometimes the user can still be on the critical path and not notice something wrong about a calculation. Is it something that is really me, which is really stupid, or is it something quite common? And uh, please tell me it's common. <laughs> no, it, it is common. I mean, you get overloaded with information in these hydraulic models. Unless you know where to look and to understand some of these issues, that they, they can go past it. You can you find hydraulic models from other users where they're you know you get another set of eyes on it, and you're like, oh, you totally missed that these customers have no supply because the pressure is incorrect, or you know you have a, a very small pipe that's you know is, is was done incorrectly. And that's I guess the nature of the software is that yeah, you have an 
almost unlimited ways that you can run it. But then you have just tables and graphs and you have to consume and understand what it is. And that's one of the big differences that we were really trying to do with Kadium was that we wanted to, for those really common use cases, to try to prompt the user, okay, these are the things you're looking for and try to give up the most important information back to you so that if there is something that is obviously incorrect that we go back to the user and make it apparent. So if water's not flowing in the right direction or something is, you know, say if the water flow is reversing and, and causing potential sediment issues, like lifting sediment, that, you know, a hydraulic engineer knows, okay, now I've got to check to see if anything's over, you know, four meters a second. Okay, I know what the, what that's all, what that means. I'll put in a report. But we wanted to go that step forward and say, okay, what is that? What's the actual risk? And explain it to the users. Talking of the users, let's try to put myself now in the, in the shoes of a user I'm a utility running my network. I'd like to start using KTM. What do I need to bring with me? Yeah, there's, so there's two ways that you can start with KTM. Originally, before I joined, and I joined about five months ago, there, it was all about you know building hydraulic models from scratch. So taking this GIS information and loading it into KTM, and there's a little like assistant that runs you through the process of, okay, let's connect up all your pipes, figure out what the demand is, and it figures out what the controls and builds a hydraulic model. So for some users that don't have anything at all, it is possible just to take your GIS information, the, the mapping information of your network and, and build a network. But as I said earlier in the, the podcast, most utilities already have a hydraulic model. Maybe they're not perfect, but they have something. And they probably already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this maybe not perfect solution. So one of the, the big changes I made when I was here is that, okay, maybe if these people have hydraulic models, we should at least take these and go with them. So where we see most utilities starting, if they have hydraulic models, taking that model that they've got, dropping into KDM and be able to hit the ground running directly from that. So you mean that you have a utility with uh, several hundred thousand dollars model and they are importing that model to KTM, which is a freemium. How do they react to that? Like, oh, I got screwed in the past or <laughs> I'm cautious for the future? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of suspicion when you suggest anything is going to be free. So is it, oh, are we going to sell your data? Are we going to like use it for some other type of purpose? Yeah, a lot of questions that pop up. I think now that we have some more, you know, some plans that actually have prices, it's subduing that a little bit. But yeah, there is a lot of people who come and ask, you know, what's what's the cash? Like, why is anything free? But in our like consumer lives, the freemium applications exist all the time. Like, you know, you'll sign up to a video game and like, oh, it's free. Oh, I have to pay a dollar like to get this extra feature, right? It's very common. So we, we think that that type of model can exist in the engineering world. And it already sort of does exist a little bit in the, the business world, but it is a very novel concept for us, but it is not new in the world, that's for sure. So you mean that really it's not a hurdle? People really accept it and they just start using the platform? I mean, that's what we found. There was um, a little bit of hesitation at the start. You know, we had to, very early on, we had to have lots of discussions with people for them to understand. I think now we've put a lot more information on our website explaining it and then people can more see the pricing scheme that we've got. That's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with making money in the business. It's it's very important to be sustainable. And then when you have these discussions with them, like this is the reason why I think there's a true passion within the founders to, you know, change the way the industry is going. And they believe that the freemium model is one approach. It is also a slight marketing approach where it does help us break into markets without, you know, the traditional sales approach. But if you explain this is what we're trying to do at, at its core, and there is some actual 
business behind it and you explain, okay, this is how we're going to be sustainable and make some money, people become a lot more accepting at that point. You noted how I was using a buzzword when I said digital twin. So let me bounce another buzzword at you. Uh, is KTM disruptive? Um, yes, I, I would say so. I mean, it's easy for all startups to say they're disruptive. Um, well, easy. Yes and no, because um, you say you're disruptive in a conservative market. It's not necessarily an asset. If you say you're disruptive and you're Uber, people will be happy to see everything. If you say you're disruptive in an industry which has as a first reaction often to say, yeah, we're doing that way for 20 years, it may be not that easy. That's a, a very good point, right? And then you see the example of Uber, they were disrupted much of the benefit of the people, but maybe not the, the governments and the people who liked it the traditional way. So I can see that point. And maybe it's very much the same here that being disruptive in, the, in this space, maybe there are, and there definitely are lots of um, users who just, who probably don't want the status quo to change, um, but there are others who, who will benefit from it. So I think shaking it up and being disruptive is part of what we're doing. We're not here just to, to give everyone a hard time. We, we think we can make a big difference. And I think both the business model and the application itself um, are disruptive and very different ways of um, doing things. So you're looking first at the water network, so the pressurized water networks. And if I understand your roadmap, next one in line is the wastewater network. And then it continues. Uh, you have the uh, irrigation networks, you have the plants and the facilities, and finally the customers. And uh, I've had on that microphone many players, especially on the plant modeling sphere. I can recall an awesome interview I had with uh, Imre Takax from Dynamita. Are you stepping on someone's toes at some point in this product roadmap? Or does it exist, someone playing on all these levels? And what is it that you want to build on the long run? Yeah, I mean, it, I think we're definitely stepping on people's toes right now. You can't be a little bit disruptive, like at least in the water space. And, and as you've seen, we do have a decent roadmap that crosses the entire realm of, of water. And maybe it's a roadmap of all the people's toes we're going to step on as we go along. So maybe people will be nervous. But yeah, the, the overall vision is to be, I mean, this is maybe the, the same as what everybody wants to be, that one source location where every decision can be made, right? That's the, the larger vision that the, the founders of KDM were looking for. You know, they wanted KDM to be the first application people open when they start their day and then all decisions to come from it. I know it's a, it's a huge wide, you know, maybe a difficult uh, path to achieve. And, you know, we're talking five, 10 years in the future. It's definitely not now. We're just happy people open KDM every day. But I think the, the founders really wanted KDM to be the core of everybody's decision and not just hydraulic modelers, but everybody in the water utility. It could be an operator, modeler, manager, doesn't matter. If they want to find information, it should be that one source of truth. Let me put that question in the fridge because I'll come back to that <laughs> when we're in the business part because it's a very fascinating one, actually. Mentioning that roadmap, how long do you think it will take for you to deploy all of that and the other side of that same coin? Once you're everything, don't you fear that you, f you, you lose a bit this advantage of being the absolute specialist of the water modeling network? Yeah, it's a good question. And even thinking about it scares me a little bit because, you know, I like to be small, agile, change things up. But eventually at all points, you'll grow maybe slightly larger. I honestly believe that will 10 years at least to get to that space. And 
I probably won't be the director of innovation at, at that point. Like my my experience is all about the you know water distribution networks, and I'm sure there'll be much more knowledgeable people who will come on board and help move the plants and those things in. Come on, you the Luke Butler. Sorry. Yes, <laughs> we're gonna have to you get a few uh, bit more experience in a few different things, but. I will be happy at least in the next two or three years that if Cadium is like the tool for digital twins for the water space and we're starting to make people nervous because we're moving into the next thing, that if we people start getting excited and, and they're knocking the door, asking for, okay, when are you going to do drainage? And then the established players, you know, sweating a little bit because, okay, well, they've gone here. What's, what's next? You know, we can see their roadmap and anticipating and planning for us to come in that area. You know, there's this... Um marketing saying that the number one asset you need is a starving crowd. If you're trying to sell something to eat to people, it's not the, the best burger in the world. It's not the best cook. It's not the best advertising, whatever. It's a starving crowd. And uh, that's the part which you cannot really control. The other side of that being that you can, of course, choose where you, where you go. So do you think you've identified your starving crowd when you see that before launching, you have 150 utilities that subscribe to the platform? Yeah, like, I mean, the the whole idea isn't, you know, it's a, it's a, a pivot away from what everybody needs, right? It's not like we're the, the totally first to do this type of application. People have tried to develop things similar to Cadium. I think they've done it in a different approach where they have something established and they cut it down to make it more accessible. But we're, we're really going the other way where we're starting from scratch and, and building up to what the market needs. I feel we we found the you know I guess the the other word is product market fit right I I I would say we're we're very close to that I, I don't think it's perfect the fact that you know in the three months sort of open beta where we invited anyone we were able to get 150 utilities to sign up is a testament to the fact that we are doing something different I know people might say well it's free anyone can sign up that's true but you know still get people to log in upload a network is a big ask for a traditional industry. So I feel we are definitely, if we're not on the pulse, we're very, very close to what people are asking for. You mentioned at the very beginning that you're an open source guy. So the beauty of that is that you have an open roadmap for KTM. So I was able to look upon your shoulder and to see what you're working on right now. And I saw that you're working on an API for KTM. Does that mean that you're looking at a, a way for third parts to come and leverage your platform? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's like one of the, the business approaches that we're, we're looking at. So obviously, you know, the traditional get the users to upgrade and work through. But another area that we want to work on is this API so that the data itself isn't locked into a single platform, that the, the users can choose what they want to do with their own data. And if that's to consume it in their own applications or work with others, we want to be able to support that. And the area that we're really thinking that this will be good is that They almost build a marketplace or or some other type of business opportunity on top of Cadium, but to leverage the data that people have put into Cadium for other uses. So say if there's an asset management company that's supplying software or ones that are looking at optimizing your networks, we'd hope that these third parties could come in and start leveraging the APIs and providing extra value to the utilities directly from the information that they've got in Cadium. Actually, this, this extra value could go in two directions. You can have additional software layers, I guess, integrations into uh, an ERP, integration to a GIS. I'm really thinking out loud. But I would see another direction, which would be to go somehow down in the vertical and to go down to the product level and try to integrate 
a bit better the product dynamically. To, uh, you mentioned the, the DMA before, which is also something which we've defined with Olivier Narbe when he was on that microphone. How do you work with product manufacturers, with sensors manufacturers, with valves manufacturers? Is it something which is somehow in your roadmap, in your head? Definitely. So I guess a lot of the examples I gave was where it was going out of KDM, but we don't just want it that way. We want other information in. So maybe the hardware is people are slightly more difficult. The sensors definitely, I mean, the first API we've got is to bring in live information into KDM for the validation, but we don't just want it to be live information. You know, say if you have some proprietary method or, you know, for leak detection and you like, okay, maybe I've got my little like web portal, but I, I also want that to be within the application. Say some, a lot of leak detection algorithms use hydraulics. So maybe it's a, a two-way street that they, okay, they will take the information from the, the live digital twin uh, into their, their leak algorithm and then it you know, generates the information, but then it sends it back. And so then you actually get the leak location in KDM itself. So we, we see that's another way to partner with people who are providing you know services and, and solutions you know, being able to go both ways. It's that whole openness that we're trying to push. At Aquatic, you were on one of the edges of the Innovation Forum. So I don't know if you've seen the other edge of the Innovation Forum just on the other side of your booth. There was um, a company called Storm Harvesters. The CEO, Brian Mullany, was uh, on that microphone uh, a couple of months ago. And he was explaining how their approach, which is leveraging artificial intelligence, may be more flexible than the modeling approach, that it may be faster. I'm not just throwing that out there. I have to say, I don't take side. I don't probably even <laughs> understand it. But what would be your, your, your take there? Is it a competition? Is it something which is complementing one another? Yeah, I, I would say it's complementary. And I, I think from the limited amount I saw and I understood, and I have to go back and listen to the podcast in full now, that especially when you're doing sensors and you're trying to find blockages and things, like you're really looking for patterns, right? And artificial intelligence can determine those patterns and, you know, alarm and, and understand what's, what's going on. So I think in those cases, it, it makes a lot more sense. Trying to replicate that in the model is, is much more difficult. Like people, especially if you can see, you know, trends and as a human, you can go, okay, there's definitely some type of leakage here. Like it doesn't always make as much sense to model that hydraulically. Uh, I think the same with like plant processing as well. Like if you have, you know, a treatment system and you're trying to figure out, okay, you've got your, your normal operations and then you put that information and in, you can figure out. So I, I think that's the case. Water distribution, and especially when you're trying to maybe ask what if questions as it gets deeper into the network, I think you can get a little bit more iffy because the model is a physics-based model. It has to, you know, it follows the, the laws of physics and it, it makes answers. But I, I think there is still opportunities things to work together, you know, either backfilling data, understanding the results of the hydraulic model or the, the difference in results. So if you have the hydraulic model and you have information coming in from the field and there's a difference, things like artificial intelligence can be that, you know, it's normally the hydraulic engineer that says, oh, I know why this is offset. It's because someone's moved the sensor or the sensor's gone wrong. The artificial intelligence can be there to help, you know, be your sidekick on the side to help you understand what's going on. And that's why we have, you might have seen our little mascot Q, which is our little artificial intelligence, you know, assistant that's helping you try to understand the hydraulic models. Okay, I put Q in the fridge as well for one more question, <laughs> just because I have one question before, and then I stopped name dropping. But uh, on that microphone, I had a discussion with Aaron Tartakovsky from Epic CleanTech, and they are doing decentralized treatments on-site, water reuse in buildings. I was just wondering, you know, if I was to now look 
in my crystal ball in the future, maybe not next year, maybe not in five years, but maybe in 10 years, 20 years, I could imagine having this decentralized units somewhere around the network, which are fully integrating with the modeling. And then you could have like a green light, red light. When can I discharge into the network? When can I take water from the network to accommodate with this 70% of people which will be living in cities by 2050? So there will be probably a nexus at some point between all those solutions. Is your ambition that that nexus happens on KTM? Yeah, possibly. I mean, there's always these talks about, you know, the hydraulic models almost being like a like a read-only view into the world like but you know when does the decisions from that thing get pushed back into day-to-day operation and i think originally it's going to be the buffer between you know the person and the decision they'll use the tool but i think it would be nice one day if KDM could bridge that gap and you know it, it stops being okay i understand the results click a button then it goes okay we'll suggest that this is what we do and then maybe eventually they'll go okay maybe we'll trust uh, it to talk to the plc and make decisions and try to play with the network maybe i'll regret putting this on microphone because it, it makes so many people nervous and a lot of the times in the other discussions it's, no no it's, it's just read only we're not we're not doing that but it would be nice to one day to think that that could be the case that we help people make those decisions and it, it does come from kdm you mentioned q let me just share that with uh, with everyone isaac actually you only contributed to 6.9 percent of the data not bad for a human being if we were inventing a microwave. Who created you? Okay. So that's the voice of Q. Your website says it's an actor from Stargate SG-1. Being a stupid French, to me, the actors of Stargate SG-1 have specific French voices, so I couldn't <laughs> figure out who it was. Who was it? Uh, <laughs> I, I will have to go back and double check. I know um, Damien from a marketing team looked her up and he had shared it. And he actually reached out on Twitter to her. I apologize for forgetting the, the actress's name, but she, yeah, she was, uh, she's, she did the voice work for, for Q for us. I'll put the reference in the episode notes. It's just that I was curious about it. And actually, that is just a very, very short extract of your teaser, which is called No Future Without Water, if I recall that, that right. And it's filmed in Cinemascope. So it's, it's even, you know, not that 1619 format. It's really the, the cinema format. It's a Hollywood teaser. Yes. <laughs> um, with a voice, I mean, for your robot, which is uh, the, the voice of the SG-1 actor, you have a board of experts and supporters. Basically, it's like name dropping in the water industry. Whoever you, you believe has a voice in that industry is somehow on your advisor board. You launched at Aquatech uh, last week. And on top of that, you have the Luke Butler in the team. <laughs> yeah. How is that possible? Why are you so well equipped and are you conscious that that is really uncommon in the water industry? Yeah, it, it is definitely uncommon. I, I guess it gives us some advantages where the Cadian was born out of a water utility um, of Valencia in Spain. And I guess we're very fortunate to have the backing of a water utility. So the senior leaders, a lot of the original staff have come from Global Omnium in Valencia. So we're very fortunate to have that prior knowledge and financial backing to make this sustainable. The advisors are, are also invaluable to you know, help us guide the product. I think it's a very uncommon for most startups. Most startups are, you know, live or die by the sale, right? They they have to, you know, they're small, scrappy. They've got to get things done. We we try to stay that. Maybe it's a little little bit too comfortable when you have a bit of you know VC backing there. 
But, you know, it, it's catch-22, right? They, you know, if you're too small, people will go, well, how can we trust you? If you're too big, you're established, right? So we're trying to play that that middle ground where, you know, we, we don't get forced to make decisions because we have no cash, but we don't want to be so big that we're just like everybody else. So, yes, it is a it is an interesting play. I don't think I've seen anyone else uh, in this fortunate position. I've seen a lot of other startups, you know, be you know, making really cool things, doing really well, and then, you know, being bought up by a large, more established player and almost disappearing from the scene because that excitement is gone or that requirement. They're obviously not going to say any names, but yeah, hopefully, you know, we can avoid that with what we've got and just, we've, and we know we're very, very fortunate to, uh, in our position. You know, I, I said I would stop name dropping, but here I have to name drop. I had Paul O'Callaghan from Blue Tech Research on that microphone, and he was presenting his thesis about water technology adoption. And what he's showing in his thesis is that quite counterintuitively, the water startups have a high survival rate. I mean, usually startups die. That's a bit their fate. In the water industry, it's the opposite. They live in a no man's land. 90% of the startups live in a no man's land where they are not really successful, but they don't fail neither. The other side of that coin is that so far, there is no water unicorn. That's really something that doesn't exist. So one water company that would go to a 1 billion valuation. So as you're really different in that landscape, I have to ask you this question. Is that the ambition of KTM to become that, that water unicorn? Uh, I, I would imagine so. I mean, the, the closest I guess we got now was Innovai selling for a billion dollars. So just hit that requirement. But I mean, well, they really... A, they, I guess, start up, they have a, a very long history, but they're obviously very, very successful. And I'm sure that the VC backers who bought them are, are very happy with, with, with their investment. But yeah, it, it is interesting that these software, like, I mean, it's a, a big market, but maybe they're too conservative. But I feel that there should be the ability to grow and, and get out there. But it, it, it seems that a lot of, like I said before, a lot of the startups get bought and then it sort of slows down and it goes back to the old big corporate sales which are nice and safe like i feel especially with the model we've got in cadium that we could grow very fast and take over the market and maybe be the unicorn of um the, the water world potentially like I, I see it like the way that we're approaching this it is the, the same as the traditional way that unicorns have grown um, out of silicon valley which will lead me to my favorite question in a second. But talking of your model, you have your free forever plan, uh, then you have a premium, and then you have a, a pro or personalized, I can't remember how you, you call it. Enterprise. Enterprise. Yeah. So what is your, your business model? What do you expect to do? Do you expect to do all your revenue from your two paying plans, or is there a bigger picture? I think that the main will be the customers. I think the number we've thrown around is we, we'd expect 80% of our customers to be able to use the, the free version. And then we would be supported by those larger established utilities that maybe have more customized needs. We also mentioned the marketplace is, is another potential opportunity to make sure we, we're sustainable. But the way that we even deploy the application the way that it's done you know it's a SaaS application so like once it's out in the cloud and it's developed it, it's relatively cheap to run the hydraulic model simulations are normally very computer intense and require a lot of data but actually through my open source software they're running locally on the machine so instead of having to transfer you know hundreds of megabytes of data and which is very costly or running big servers we're running them locally on the computers so it ends up you know what would only cost us cents like literal, like fractions of a sense to post and do it. And, and that savings allows us to have such a, you know, a unique business model. But we do think 
that it's good. Like I said, those big players are really going to be the key to, to making this done, you know, and we want to still support as many users as possible, but it's going to be things like if you feel you really need to be able to ring somebody up on a phone and talk to somebody as support, you're probably more like an enterprise person and you, you'll probably, you'll have to pay for that, right? If you want a, an AI person and a big help desk to try to solve it, then maybe you can get away with the free. We don't want to disadvantage people by staying free. We just want to maybe make it a little bit easier as you go up the ranks. And as with any business, as we grow, I'm sure those plans will change and, and move around. You've got to deal with other startups and you know, add more value. But I think the core of what we're still trying to do is trying to give hydraulic models to as many people as possible. And, and that will be primarily through that free plan. So I've bothered many guests with that single question, which is, do you believe that hypergrowth is possible in the water industry? But let me tweak it a bit because somehow you've explained that your path is to, to set it for hypergrowth. You have this free forever plan, which is a way to uh, take a, a big share in the market. And then if it becomes the application according to your vision to be the first application people are using, then you have this additional lever to go to the marketplace and everything. So it's not, is it possible, but how do you want to achieve it? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. I think if you split it in two bits, if you know, could we get hyper growth in user adoption? I, I think definitely. Maybe not hyper growth in revenue and, and and profitability, but I think the fact that we have a free application that anyone can use it makes it obviously remove so much friction and the ability to, to grow quickly. I think even from these early conversations with users where people get just really excited by it. Like, and I talked to some of the early adopters and like, oh, I went to three other cities and I told them about it and I was demoing it or they're a consultant like, oh, I, I had it up as a presentation. And, you know, like this is the, you know, the, the whole like viral nature of it where if people love the product and then want to tell others, you're no longer just the single channel trying to sell. Your, your users are selling for you. It's product-led growth. You know, the product will, will sell itself. And I guess that's where we also, where we're trying to stand out from others. You know, the established software is not sold to the end user. The established, you know, they, they will build hydraulic software to, well, almost all enterprise to, to tick boxes, say, okay, it's got to do these 20 things. So we better make sure it does it and we'll go put in a bid to the manager and the manager will give it to the engineers. We're turning that on its head. We're like, you're going to love our product because you want to use it. And if you like it enough to pay for it, you'll pay. And so we're giving it back to the people who are actually using it day-to-day -to, -day to make that choice for themselves. So that's why we think, If we're successful, we've done the right thing, it will, will hit hyper growth. And then we, we hope that we can then provide just enough extra value that then, you know, okay, let's, you know, then the engineers, operators, whoever talk to the managers, like, oh, we could benefit a little bit from having a few extra features. Actually, there's an edgy side to this hyper growth thing, which is we need to have deep pockets because it's going to be hard at the beginning to be cash positive, at least. Do you have like a ticking clock on your head? Like you have two years to achieve it or... What's your approach? Yeah, yeah. There. So I think we've been building the product for about a, a year now. So I've been there maybe four or five months. I think we've still got a little bit of time on our belt to, to grow. And I think this this positive feedback that we've received so far is going to keep the, the the founders and the investors, you know, happy for now that we're not going to have this. You know, me me getting the boot and the sales teams coming in. I, I honestly believe if we did have the sales team, we'd be very successful tomorrow being able to sell the product but there is a little bit of time hopefully i hope by the end of next year you know cash flow positive and, and go from there but there's no pressure at this stage for that i think it's all about 
adoption, getting people out there, which is an extremely fortunate position for any startup to be in where you think, okay, we don't have to worry. It's not, you know, sell or die, basically. We can, let's just make sure the product's working and, and, and go from there. You mentioned that a sales team would help you to grow, which sounds quite logical. What is your vision there? Is it to have your own sales team at Katium or to partner with existing market players? Yeah, that, it's an interesting one. And there's always these big internal debates and exactly, you know, talk to some of the advisors that we've got and they're very much like, just get a sales team now, you'll make you'll make millions. It's it's easy. Like, and that's probably the easy choice. And maybe later on, you know, you can look at the you know, the, the freemium players and upgrade them with a sales team. You could work with service providers to take revenue sharing, that type of thing. There's a lot of different options. And I think it's because it's more than a year away, we haven't done anything, but it could be any of those selection lines. Get a, a sales team, work with um, you know service providers like consultancies to to deploy and revenue share. There's lots of options, and I don't know if I think all of them would work. And I guess we just have to start testing the waters and understanding. That's I think the thing you've got to be open with with a, a startup. You know, you'll never have the right solution to start with either your product or your business approach, and being willing to be flexible and you know read the metrics, make the decision, make changes, and, and go from there. Well, I'm not one of your advisors. And I don't want to even compare myself with the names you have on, on that list. It's just that I don't know if you got the chance to walk a bit the floor at Aquatech. But it, it turns out that most of the companies which are in the water industry are nowadays trying to establish their platform. And uh, when it's not in your DNA to establish a platform, it's always going to be quite limited because you're seeing the thing from your own lens. So I think it sounds like quite an obvious win-win if you were to partner with those players because they would have a cool platform to leverage their hardware or their additional services, and you would have their, their foot on the ground. 100% agree. Like, especially the big draw on KDM is just the visuals. And if people haven't seen it, um, if you see the demos, like there was a lot of time spent on the, the user experience. And it's just, I would say, a beautiful application, just so simple, so intuitive. That is exactly my point. It's, if you look at everything which is existing in that market, most of the time, it's technically working. But the user experience is lame. Exactly. And we had quite a few suppliers come up like, oh, we have a portal, but it doesn't look like this. Like, and then it was always about <laughs> like, how can we, you know, do you have APIs? Can we connect in? And, and probably half the discussions I had was with suppliers who, who saw that the application was like, how do we get on top of this? And, it, you know, the early days, everyone was like, oh, how do I put your product into my product? And it's now switched the other way. We're like, I just want to be whatever is happening here. Like, it's just, you know, just a totally different way of, displaying an application. I mean, it's very modern. It's like very fresh. If, if you saw it as a consumer, maybe like, oh, yeah, it's, it's a nice slick website, but as a commercial application, it's really nice. And it was actually what we led with with uh, in Aquatech is like we had the big screen up and we're like, oh, what do we do a presentation? This? I'm like, no, let's just put Cadium up there, just a loop so you can actually, if you haven't seen it, you've got the, the pipes and you can actually see the flows moving through the network. And we had so many people just stop and go, well, what's this? And they would come up and ask questions. And some people were like, oh, so do you actually have a demo of your application? I'm like, that's the application. Let me like, let's, let's start moving around. They were honestly surprised by it. Let me close that deep dive with um, a crystal ball question. Your teaser was called, as we said before, no future without water. Is it like an overall vision you, you have to lead all of that? Are you doing that for a mission? Are you doing that because you want to achieve something? Or what will tell you that you've succeeded if you're looking at my crystal ball and look at KTM in, in five years? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. The the no future without water was really built to try to connect with actually people who weren't hydraulic engineers or even the utility themselves to talk with the consumers themselves. It was an early attempt to you know resonate with consumers 
and maybe personally, I, I don't know if it was really the right approach. It is very slick and, and sort of fits in with the brand, but it, it was an attempt. What would I think to if we were successful? I mean, I guess if if we think really far in the future, it's at the moment we see Kinium as being a, a supplementary tool for you know the established hydraulic modeling platforms. Like, okay, you'll still have this and it'll be on the side. But I think we'll be really successful. I'll know we're successful when people are not asking, oh, do I also want KDM, but do I just want KDM where it's the main platform for them, where they don't need to move? And that might be years in the future, but I, I think when we start to see utilities decide, oh, we don't need to use X software anymore, we can just use KDM. I think I know we've, we've made it then. Sounds like an ambitious yet reasonable, surprisingly reasonable dream <laughs> when I see how you're equipped to, to actually achieve that. So fingers crossed for you. I propose you to switch to our rapid fire questions. Sure. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in this last section, I try to ask you short questions, which you can answer with short answers. I'm not cutting the microphone if you want to to be longer. (laughs) And I'm always the one which is going to sidetrack you. Don't worry. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? If it's right, I'll, I'll flip this, and it's not a uh, project, but, but team. When I was a young engineer at utility, I worked in a skater department, and they struggled to keep engineers because they could be taken by oil and gas. So instead, we worked with this manager who would just basically let us have free reign to do anything we wanted all day long, as long as the skater department was up. And you think as a couple of young 20-year-olds, you'd just like mess around. But instead, we were highly creative. We were building new apps, doing new things, always playing with things, and always keeping skater up. But it was the, the most exciting team environment that I've ever been on, highly creative, a lot of fun, uh, especially as a young engineer. You tell people like, what do you do all day? I'm like, I can do whatever I want. It's fun. And like people are like, why don't you do nothing? I'm like, that'd be boring. <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely the most exciting role project that I ever did. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? <laughs> this is not going to be water related, but I didn't realize how much free time I had to be creative, to do whatever I wanted until I had my daughter. <laughs> and then I realized, wow, I had so much free time to do anything and everything. And now my whole life, of, well, at least for one year, was totally consumed in, in, in somebody else's needs. And then, wow, we just like, oh, you want to sleep in and make pancakes? Oh, do you, I want to code a bunch of open source applications. Sure, I'll do that. And then I'm like, well, <laughs> I didn't appreciate that. So while having family is beautiful, you do sacrifice a bit of free time that I never knew I, I had. I learned that the hard way. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Oh, it's a, I hope I, <laughs> maybe this is not a technical one, but I hope I never have to do another network future plan ever again. If this whole Cadian thing goes out, <laughs> if I never have to do that again, or if there's some way that we can totally automate that or make that easier, that I would be so happy because I think I'd rather quit than have to do that again. So let's say 10 years, I'd have to do a 30-year a plan for hydraulic modeling. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Uh, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a boring answer, but I, I do think digital twins are, are a big a big piece and then that extending to more people. People will shortcut it and say, oh, I've already got a digital twin. But I think once you have some proper digital representation of the network and people, more people get access to that information, I think it's going to be a game changer. And I think really if they can then push that to people outside the organization, first to consultants and then maybe even customers, that will be a, a big thing if that ever happens. Let me push a bit further on that digital twin because I'd like to get to, to, to the bottom of that. You mentioned 
that the digital twin can be, you know, this online puppet where you're playing with, and once you're very happy about what it does, you just copy it and you do the same in the real life. Or it can be something which is quite on itself, doing some tests and then coming back to you and giving you an advice, still not actuating, but doing giving you an advice. Or finally, the last level would be, it comes back and it implements it. And then you just get to see that it works better. Do you think we'll get to that level of automation? Will we allow it in our engineering-rich water industry? Um, in my lifetime, I don't know. I, I really hope so. It would be amazing. I'd like to at least see it in a small scale, maybe some small systems. I'm sure there are small systems. Well, there are small systems that run themselves. So why not bridge that gap with a digital twin? I, I think we'll start to see more and more interesting cities doing it. I know one of our actual advisors is Neom um, in Saudi Arabia, where they're developing a whole new city from scratch. And like they have, they'll have sensors everywhere. It will happen eventually. If I'm retired or not, is that maybe another question if it's mainstream, but it, w- it will eventually be there. So I have a broad question for you. If you were a word political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Yeah, I know this is going to be much more a, a developed world solution. So I apologize for not being maybe worldly enough, but I think more openness in data is is a big piece. I think that, you know, s- some utilities in North America are uh, legislated to provide, you know, open information and it gives more transparency to how the, you know, the, the, the network works. So you can go to a web portal, see their entire GI system, the networks, but I would love to see that extend to even more information. So like, why couldn't someone who lives in a city know what the level in the tower is, the pumps are, or how much, you know, the real-time pricing? Like, I think that opens up transparency. Like, there's very little benefit at the moment for utilities to do that. Maybe they'll they'll find issues. But I think it would help both the creative public and private side to, to find better solutions if there was more openness in data, not just, you know, static GIS information, but raw information that people consume. And, and you know, it could drive a huge amount of innovation. I would definitely push for yeah more openness just in pure data. I'm sure you're not the right person to tell you if it's a first world problem or if it's a worldwide problem. But what I can tell you is that uh, I was discussing that with David Lloyd Owen on that microphone in his uh, Global Water Funding book. He explains how he's trying to make sense of the stats, numbers, and and data he gets a bit from everywhere, but that the the number of open data is is surprisingly low even more in developed countries. For instance, it's almost impossible to get uh, data out of European utilities uh, just because, oh, they're good. Come on, uh, it's their business. And that's, I think it's, an, it's a negative way to, to look at it because you could reuse so much best practices from one place to another. You could leverage so much more if we were to understand everything. So I, I fully subscribe to your call for open data, which uh, somehow was our red thread today. <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably uh, the obvious choice for, for me to go down, but it is what I uh, live and breathe. Well, last question. Would you have someone to recommend me to invite on that microphone as soon as possible? Yeah, so this, you remember that team I was talking about where I was a young engineer, it was run by um, a guy named um, Andrew Foster Knight. Uh, so he he was the uh, skater sort of manager, digital sort of manager there. He's now worked his way up to general manager, I think, of digital utility. It's been a, a long time since I've talked to him, so maybe he won't like me for throwing him out there. But Southeast Water, the, the utility I worked for when I was in Australia, doing some really interesting stuff around digital. Like they changed, uh, they 
it was an old treatment plant they made into a, a development and they're putting all this digital technology in. They've developed their own hardware, like smart meters, and they're putting in. And he's the one really leading the charge there. So like even from a technical point, but even the cultural, how he ran that department was amazing. And he was, you know, you know, in a utility, it's usually all the old guys running the, the thing. But he was in his 30s when he became a manager, which was very young. I think he'd be a very interesting person to chat to if you ever had the, the chance to get him. Time zone would be a killer, but it would be a, a, a worthy interview. Well, I just had um, Mina Gulli and Scott Hamilton from, from Australia. It's, it's hard to find a common spot, but we can find it. So thanks for the advice. Luke, if people want to follow up with you, what's the best place to reach you? Probably the best channel is is LinkedIn. Uh, if you go to LinkedIn, you'll find Luke Ballar and then look up Cadium. Uh, maybe you'll share it in the notes. Um, I, I try, That's usually where I talk most publicly. It's probably the social media channel where you'll find the most water professionals. I don't really do Twitter too much or YouTube. But yeah, if, I would say go there and that's probably the easiest way to reach out to me. Otherwise, you want to find things about me. It's probably, you know, or what we're doing in Cadium is obviously the Cadium website. And I think even if you go to my LinkedIn profile, I link to all of my GitHub and some like, contacts you can get to me and you can see some of like articles I've written on openness. It's probably yeah, the best place to start. Perfect. Well, Luke, it was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for your openness. See what I did here? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd be glad to, to follow on because... You're right, Innovise might be the first unicorn, but it's there just at the bar. Let's, uh, let's see if you can break that bar of the 1 billion. Let's see how long it takes. I think it's just a matter of time. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.